Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 59, Black Wednesday, Can You Spare Two Dimes? Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Translate who we translate. Discover inexpensive sources of cheese when we discover inexpensive sources of cheese. And today I'll be discussing Season 3, Episode 24, Brother Can You Spare Two Dimes? It first aired on August 27th, 1992, three and a half months after the last episode aired. I'm going to be talking about Black Wednesday, the day that the Bank of England lost at least three billion pounds in one day. That was on the 26th of September 1992, three weeks after Brother Can You Spare Two Dimes was first aired, but it happened during the break between season three and four, so I think it's allowed. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Unless the question is, why didn't you record last week and release as usual? Yes, this is take two. Because what happened was, I pressed record. Everything did what it usually did. Popped up saying, starting the recording. So we thought we'd record an episode, but when it came to play it back, we had half a second of Gareth going, "Eh!" and that was it. Some of my finest work, I think. Um... (laughs) Uh, if we ever get together to do a Patreon, that might may well be an exclusive in the future. So uh, get get ready for that. Yes, but in the meantime, get ready for spontaneity because we've got to pretend that we haven't heard each other's jokes and stuff like that. So uh, <laughs> good luck with that. Yes. So um, th- th- here's a surprise for you, uh, Tom. I'm going to take you back to August the 27th, 1992, and explain why we've jumped this far forward. So this episode, given its big character return and its guest star, was originally meant to be the first episode of the fourth series. But Fox decided to air it earlier to promote the series premiere of Martin, a sitcom starring comedian Martin Lawrence, then known as a stand-up comedian and the star of the House Party films, and now better known for the Bad Boys films. Did it work? Well, it got five seasons, and it ran until 1997, so yeah... Why not? But Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one that week? It's Snap with Rhythm is a Dancer. Now, we've actually heard from these guys before, way back when we were doing season one, and they did The Power. So that was in our episode 10, which is the Poltax Riots Night Out. And that leaves me in a slight quandary about what's left to say about this as I ran through the band last time. Um, so here's just a few random facts about Rhythm is a Dancer. Uh, firstly, this is Snap's biggest selling single, uh, and it was number one in the UK for six weeks, most of which are actually missing due to our slight time shift. This also went to number one in Germany, France, Belgium, Austria, Italy, the Netherlands, Ireland, Israel, Spain, Switzerland, and yes, Zimbabwe. It was the second single from their second album, The Madman's Return. The first single from the album, Colour of Love, went to number one absolutely nowhere and peaked at a mere 54 in the UK charts in December 1991. And finally, 
Rhythm is a Dancer had a brief second life when it was used in an advert for Drench Mineral Water, which also featured Brains from Thunderbirds. That propelled the song back into the singles charts at number 23 in 2008. So there you go. Literally a few things about that song. But since we've had a gap, I thought it was only fair to tell you what we've missed in the, that intervening time. We missed On a Ragger Tip, Guns N' Roses' terrible cover of Knocking on Heaven's Door, I'm Raving, I'm Raving, Criss Cross with Jump, perhaps their, their quintessential tune, <laughs> Erasure with the Abba SKP, Nick Berry's cover of Heartbeat, Utah Saints, Sesame's Treat, the rave version of the Sesame Street theme tune, Ain't No Doubt by Jimmy Nail. Oh, damn, I wanted to cover that one. I'll have to wait for Crocodile Shoes now. Sexy MF by Prince. Barcelona by Freddie Mercury and Montserrat Caballé. John Cicada's magnum opus, Just Another Day. And, yes, Achy Breaky Heart. Yeah. What, what a cavalcade. So much more I could have said about any of those than uh, Rhythm is a Dancer. It seems like we missed the, the summer of rave as well, judging by that particular selection. Mm. Now, in other news, and you'll have to indulge me for a second, we'll never visit August again. So this is the only time I can mention this particular annual event. And at this version of it, that being WWF SummerSlam 92, held on August the 31st, four days after Brother Can You Spare Two Diners first aired, it was held at Wembley Stadium and attended by me. And whilst there, I witnessed the Ultimate Warrior defeat Macho Man Randy Savage by countout in a match for the WWF Championship after interference from the Nature Boy Ric Flair. But as we all know, a title cannot change hands on a countout or disqualification. So he did not win the gold. The event was inevitably headlined by the British Bulldog himself, Davy Boy Smith, who defeated future Simpsons guest star Brett Hitman Hart for the Intercontinental Championship in a match that is still regularly quoted as one of the greatest of all time. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 10.7, which is only approximately 9.7 million viewers. That's well down on the episodes that directly preceded it, at least partially due to it being in the summer. But it was still the 31st highest rated show for the week, which is actually four places higher than the previous episode was. It was the second highest rated show on Fox after the 44th Primetime Emmy Awards ceremony. The production number was 8F23, and the credited writer is that fictional fellow we all love, John Schwartzwelder, who we discussed in episode five, Bart the First McDonald's in Moscow. And he doesn't exist. He does not. The chalkboard gag is, I will not fake John Schwartzwelder's, ex I mean, sorry, I will not fake seizures. And the couch gag is everyone cartwheeling onto the sofa and striking a pose. But what actually happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to... The annual plant physical, for which Lenny, who has gone commando at the worst possible time, requests a load of Homer's underpants. The load is refused. Homer is found to have 104% body fat, largely due to him eating a chicken leg in the measuring tank. But even worse is to come, for the plant, not necessarily Homer, when he is found to be sterile. And with the plant's radiation to blame, he could sue for millions. Mr. Burns calls in his lawyers, who he clearly holds in complete contempt, calling them vipers and giving them coffee black like their hearts, in a frankly berserk outpouring of ingrained hatred. 
They suggest a token cash settlement, but at that moment, we're spirited away to the opposite end of the wealth gap, as under a railway bridge, a number of hobos discuss their failed business ventures, including the hilarious Mickey Mouse massage parlours. And yes, I did watch this on Disney+, Plus. they've yet to remove it. And also the inventor of New Coke. It is revealed that one of those present is none other than Herb Powell, Homer's half-brother, now fallen on extremely hard times due to his own business negligence, which he blames on Homer, despite the fact that Homer was only in a job he wasn't remotely qualified for because Herb wasn't paying enough attention. I'm sorry, it has to be said. But this is America, and all the man really needs is an idea. Then we're off to another location. The Simpson home for the always controversial couch vault in what promises to be a classic living room Olympics. Long story short, Bart destroys the couch and somehow gets away with it. As Homer recalls all the fun times he's spent on said couch, including who shot JR, hands across America and the fall of the Berlin Wall. And then we're off again, this time to Herb in the park getting an idea and then off again to the plant where Carl and Lenny commiserate with Homer about the loss of his sofa. Just when he thinks things can't get any worse, he's called to Mr. Burns' office. But of course, we know what's in store. A token cash settlement. $2,000, which Burns dresses up as an award, furiously backpedalling all the way. The first annual Montgomery Burns Award for Outstanding Achievement in the Field of Excellence, complete with hastily assembled gala award ceremony. The biggest farce since the Emmys. But not even smoking Joe Frazier can cheer Homer up after the loss of his sofa, with the former then deciding to take out his aggression on a surprisingly mouthy Barney. And news of Homer's financial award then reaches Herb, who jumps the next train to Springfield, but passes on a few of the more dangerous carriages. Tom, try to look surprised at the second time we do this quiz. What do those <laughs> carriages contain? Well, the first one contains toxic waste. The second one contains circus lions. And the third one contains sulfuric acid, which is also dangerous, therefore it has to be luminous green. Is sulfuric acid usually luminous green? No, no. <laughs> but, but, but toxic waste, uh, radioactive waste, isn't usually luminous green anyway. That whole thing comes from uranium. Back in the days before health and safety, people used to make products out of uranium because it would glow green under the right circumstances. And that has just permeated culture. Ah, so video games have lied to me all these years. Mm -hmm. An unsurprising three out of three there, Tom. I, <laughs> I pause only to note that the sulfuric acid is crusty branded. Oh, um, yes. And that uh, Herb eventually winds up in a, in a carriage marked Emile's Fluffy Pillows. Suddenly, Homer spies the Spine Melter 2000 vibrating reclining chair in a furniture shop for $1,999.99. He has his goal for the episode, one which is set back first by Marge, and then by the arrival of a still erroneously bitter Herb, who also gets a meal and a spruce-up from Flanders after knocking at the wrong house. After an extensive tour of the light switches, he settles in for a violent game of Monopoly, and a discussion about the best way to spend the award cash. Lisa nominates a set of classic literature books, Bart a machine gun, a marginal washer and dryer. Homer also pitches for a certain $2,000 chair. 
Herb instead gives a 20-minute presentation about how he can invest it in his new idea, after distracting Homer with a novelty drinking bird, which I forgot was in this episode. Herb has an idea for a baby translator, using the pitch of cries to interpret their feelings. He guarantees the money back in 30 days, and Homer is fine with lending him the money if he forgives him and treats him like a brother. Given, and I do have to mention this again, that the whole situation is Herb's fault, that's not actually a bad deal, but he still rejects it. Luckily, Homer is happy to part with the money, as long as he gets the drinking bird. Now Maggie becomes key to Herb's plan, and actually gets some attention for once. And long story short, Herb manages to make a working version of his idea, which is a good and profitable idea, if at all possible, which it isn't. Because if it was, someone would have done it by now. The invention is the talk of the baby expo, above and beyond Professor Frink's reckless endangerment of his own son. And when the precious baby discount store buys 50,000 units, Herb has his fortune again, and returns Homer's check, along with a gift for each of the family. Lisa gets her books, Marge a washer and dryer, Maggie something nice instead of the dog food she was after, and Bart gets NRA membership in lieu of his machine gun. But Herb has the best gift of all for Homer. Forgiveness. Which wasn't his to give. <laughs> so it's a good job he also got him the Spider Milter 2000. And season 3 ends, or season 4 begins, depending on who you ask, with Homer contentedly rattling away. I feel like, as much as I like this episode, as much as it has some good uh, moments in it, it's a bit of a step down from what is now the top level. Mm-hmm. Stick this in season one, it's going to stand out in terms of quality. But in season three, particularly towards the end of season three, it's kind of Commodore Garden. Hmm. Yeah, I can kind of agree with that. I mean, there are elements of it which are great. I love the interaction between Danny DeVito and Dan Castellaneta. If I said that right, probably not. But there's some elements of it which aren't so good, like Barney's fight with Joe Frazier. So I know Barney's got record with that because he picks a fight with Wade Boggs over who was England's greatest prime minister in an absolute classic Simpsons moment. But with Joe Fraser, it's just like he wants a fight. Just... It, it is out odd and it's out of nowhere. I wonder whether that was meant to be a recurring bit that Barney would pick a fight with the celebrity of the week. Um mm. If so, it, it doesn't seem to have progressed any further than this. No. If if Barney and Joe Frazier were saying, Lord Palmerston, pit the elder, then it would have been all right. It would have had something to it. But they go outside, some blood appears on the door, and Barney ends up eating a peanut in a bin. We've all been there, to be fair. But... <laughs> Which leads us to our character debut for this episode, Smoking Joe Frazier the undisputed world heavyweight boxing champion from 1970 to 1973, he was also the first person to defeat Muhammad Ali back in 1971. He lost the title to George Foreman, and in fact only ever lost four bouts, two of which were to Foreman and the other two to Ali. If you're going to lose to only two boxers ever, and those are the boxers, I don't think you can be doing that badly. After retirement, he trained his son, Marvis Frazier, who also only ever lost to two boxers, Larry Holmes and Mike Tyson. See my previous comment. 
And finally, he trained his daughter, Jackie Frazier Lyde, who would box Layla Ali, daughter of Muhammad Ali, in the somewhat cynically marketed Ali versus Frazier 4 bout. And lose. Smoking Joe made a second appearance in The Simpsons, also as himself, in Season 17, Episode 10, Homer's Paternity Coot, but is unlikely to appear again in the future due to him having died on November the 7th, 2011. We also get reappearances for Unky Herb, the blue-haired lawyer, and Akira, who is now a furniture salesman rather than a sushi chef. Herb, of course, will not reappear until Season 24, Episode 11, Changing of the Guardian, and even then he's just heard on the phone, although a picture of him can be spotted in Season 16, Episode 7, The Heartbroke Kid. We do get another debut of sorts, the first appearance of Homer's Sperm, who will later appear in Flashback, and in much better health, in Season 6, Episode 13, and Maggie Makes 3. It will also be revealed in Season 24, Episode 3, Adventures in Baby Getting, that Homer was a frequent sperm donor under the alias of Thad Supersperm, and funded the purchase of a Corvette with the proceeds. I do love an American muscle car, and the Corvette is right up there, so I approve of this turn of events. Are you ready for your last Did You Knows of the season, Tom? I am. One of the hobos, who is eating a shoe, bears an uncanny resemblance to Charlie Chaplin's Tramp character. That's my you did know for the week, by the way, (laughs) because uh, I don't think anyone needs that explaining to them. Homer's rapturous experience in the Spine Melter 2000 is a reference to astronaut Dave Bowman's journey through Tycho Magnetic Anomaly 2 in orbit of Jupiter in Stanley Kubrick's film adaptation of Arthur C. Clarke's book 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hands across America. What on earth was that? I think to myself every time I see this episode. So I thought I'd look it up. And now I know, and you're about to know, that it was a charity event staged on Sunday, May the 25th, 1986, where up to 6.5 million people held hands for 15 minutes to try to form a continuous human chain across the contiguous United States, that being all the bits that are together, so not counting Alaska or Hawaii. It's mentioned in the episode, but it was basically never a goer due to large uninhabited areas in the West, you know, deserts and that kind of thing. But they reckoned with the number of people who took part, they had enough to have formed a chain across the contiguous US had that actually been physically possible. So that's something, I suppose. And finally, a fitting season-closing fact. When Homer is announced as the winner of the first annual Montgomery Burns Award for Outstanding Achievement in the Field of Excellence, his walk-on music is the theme from The Simpsons. (laughs) Well, just one thing I'd like to add. Homer's physical. What sort of a physical involves uh, producing a semen sample for inspection? What is all that about? But having said that, I do like the way sperm is presented in this episode because it's a throwback to the Middle Ages when certain people believed that the sperm was what was called a homunculus, i.e. it was a little miniature person that needed to be incubated in a uterus for nine months until it grew into a baby. And and that's how it's presented here, because each of the sperm, whether it's homes or Smithers, which is even weirder, Smithers providing a control sample... It was just, yeah, there you go, Mr. Burns, there's my sperm. Where, where, where they're essentially presented as little homers or little smithers. Uh, yeah, that's a real throwback to the Middle Ages, that is. 
Ah, the Middle Ages, constantly overstating the male role in things. Indeed. And I believe that takes us to memeable moments. Mm. So the memes in this one, it's a real case of quality over quantity, because there aren't many, but the ones that are there are very much, oh, it's this one moments. So there's one of the first few seconds. This man is 104% body fat. Hey, no eating in the tank. Go to hell. I saw an example of this fairly recently after Argentine football legend Diego Maradona passed away. This man is 104% cocaine. Hey, no snorting in the tank. Go to hell. Okay, moving on from that rather tasteful section. Number two. The first annual Montgomery Burns Award for Outstanding Achievement in the Field of Excellence. I mean, that, that's very memeable just because of the way Mr. Burns goes off on this clearly improvised. He's making it up as he goes along and they turn it into an actual event brilliantly, I think. Number three, it's drinking the water. I don't know why, but there's something about that scene where Homer is presented with the drinking bird. I think it's the perspective, how the bird is put down in front of the camera and Homer's towards the back of the shot. And Homer goes, it's drinking. Oh, what? <laughs> it's just great. And finally, number four, the washer and dryer race. Moe is racing the old washer and dryer and Barney's going, come on, washer. <laughs> That stands out for, for some reason. There are moments which I think should be memeable, but aren't. There's the bit where Herb says to Homer, will you stop thinking about your ass?" Or ass, because it's American. And when the baby translator is revealed for the first time, Marge goes, ooh. And I think Marge's ooh should be a meme, because it should be up there. I think it's got real potential. If, if anybody out there is looking for the next meme trend, I, I think we found it. I mm -hmm. honestly do. I mean, uh, I can think of uh, nearly three situations I could use that for. It's yeah, I've got I've got one for you now, ladies and gentlemen. The new leader of the Liberal Democrats. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I don't think I can top the new leader of the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> so I guess we'd better move on to Black Wednesday. Yes, let's have a bit of politics. Right. OK, Black Wednesday, the day the Bank of England lost at least £3 billion. Now, before I start, I need to hold my hands up and say that I am not an economist. Usually I find the subject as dry as the Aral Sea. I'll be talking about interest rates, inflation, pension funds, that sort of thing. The sort of thing that Gareth talks about for his day job. So if I get anything wrong, I'm sure Gareth will correct me. So with that proviso, let's take care of some terminology. So as far as I'm aware, the foundation of economics is still supply and demand. They are what dictate the price of something. The higher the demand, the higher the price. And supply is inversely proportional. So the lower supply, the higher the price. So if you've got a very rare jazz album, if the artist who made it has just died, that increases the demand, therefore that increases the price, etc. So that's supply demand. Then there's gross domestic product. So this can be defined as the monetary measure of the market value of goods and services. So many peanuts, basically. Economic growth can roughly be defined as the increase of GDP over time. Overall, 
economic growth is considered a good thing. Swish, 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 browse. More growth means more jobs, more financial security, etc., etc. Obviously, it doesn't work out that way in practice because it's usually a handful of people get all the money and the rest of us don't. Next, inflation. Inflation is a measure of the rise in prices of things over time. So if $20 will buy many peanuts and inflation takes hold, $20 will buy less than many peanuts. To the average Joe, inflation is bad, simply because the money in your pocket buys less stuff. Next for now, interest rates. Each country's financial institution sets a base rate of interest. In the UK, it's the Bank of England, but before good old Tony Blair changed it, it was set by the government. The interest rate is the percentage charged on how much someone borrows or saves. They are of particular interest to those of us who have either a mortgage or a savings account. If you've got lots of savings, you want interest rates to be high so that you can make money on them. If you've got a big loan, like a mortgage, you want them to be low so you've got less to pay back. Believe it or not, there was a time when interest rates were much more than zero. They've been ridiculously low, actually zero in Japan, since the financial crisis of 2018. For some reason, we don't call it the credit crunch anymore, which I think is a bit of a shame. That's such a shame. It was so easily marketable as well. My uh, my wedding brunch, would you believe, was uh, known as the credit crunch brunch. <laughs> well, it sounds like a breakfast cereal to me. Captain start, Credit Crunch. Yeah, start your day with a healthy bowl of Credit Crunch, part of this delicious <laughs> breakfast. So, the idea of keeping interest rates low is to stimulate economies by encouraging borrowing. Inflation has also been historically low during this time. On the other hand, increasing interest rates increases the cost of borrowing, so if inflation increases, this will often be met with a rise in interest rates as happened in the UK in the late 70s, when the base rate rose to a whopping 17% on November the 17th, 1979, months since Margaret Thatcher's first term. So, before I get into the meat of the story, there are a few things that I need to explain. The first is the European Exchange Rate Mechanism, or ERM. This was introduced in 1979 as a way to stop fluctuations in currency values in preparation for monetary union. Basically, if a bunch of countries are going to share a currency, then the values of the currencies that preceded them should remain stable, so that each currency can be fairly easily replaced, in this case with the euro. When the ERM launched in 1979, the UK declined to be a part of it. This caused a split with the Republic of Ireland, as before then, the Irish pound, or punt, had been tied to the pound sterling at parity. As well as Ireland, the other countries in the ERM were Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Denmark, and of course, Germany, or West Germany, as it was then. The value of the currencies within the mechanism were pegged to the strongest one, which in this case was the German Deutschmark, split as it was into 100 Finnigs, which is still one of my favourite words to say ever, a Finnig. All participants of the ERM were expected to take measures to ensure that their currencies did not fluctuate beyond upper and lower bounds set as percentages against the Deutschmark when their currency joined. British membership of the ERM had been a political hot potato, especially in the Conservative Party, right the way through the 1980s. The party was split between those who favoured closer ties with Europe and those opposed, the so-called Eurosceptics. Now, of course, back then, European integration was very different to how it is today. Arguments for and against European integration could be split into two camps, ideological and pragmatic. The ideological arguments for it went roughly along the lines of we can be in Europe, lead it, steer it, and run it for our own benefit. 
the arguments against it were, no, two world wars, one world cup. We need to do our own thing. The practical ones we'll get into in a minute. The Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, kept the UK out of the ERM until she was persuaded otherwise by John Major, who towards the end of his tenure was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the UK's finance minister, basically. The case for entering the ERM was as follows. At the end of the 80s and going into the 90s, the British economy was in poor shape. On the other hand, Germany, whose currency the other currencies in the ERM were tied to, was doing well. The idea was that British membership of the ERM would be beneficial to the UK because it would encourage foreign investment. We could say, you can have confidence in the pound, it's pegged to the mighty Deutschmark. As a consequence, British interest rates had to match those set by Germany. As you can imagine, essentially handing control of the pound over to the Bundesbank didn't go down too well with the Tory faithful. Essentially, Thatcher set up the pound to fail by joining the ERM in the manner in which she did. She wanted to join three days before the Tory party conference of 1990 in order to give herself a boost. Remember, this is the time of the poll tax rise. Thatcher was polling at like 20% or something. Mm. At that time, one pound was worth just under three Deutschmarks, which was high. Also, the ERM rule stipulated that before a currency could join, there had to be a consultation with the existing members. John Major called up Karl Otto Poll, the president of the Bundesbank, and told him that the UK would be joining the ERM with a pound set at two Deutschmarks and 95 Pfennigs, and that a public announcement would be made. Poll told Major that the UK had to play by the rules, but as a public announcement was due, it would be too late to negotiate. So if a negotiation had taken place and the pound went in lower, things might have been different, but we'll never know. ERM membership was not the instant panacea that John Major thought it would be. The UK was entering into a recession anyway, and unemployment got worse, with over a million people losing their jobs in the subsequent 18 months. The high value of the pound also made it harder for exporters, as the price of UK goods was high. Inflation dropped, as did house prices. Out of work, some people were forced to sell their houses for less than they paid for them. So we had the dreaded negative equity. Basically, if your house is worth less than you paid for it, that's the middle class nightmare, negative equity. Mm. In fact, you could say that ERM membership was John Major's flagship monetary policy going into the UK general election of 1992, which we ended up missing. We didn't cover the 1992 election because it fell between Alberto Fujimori's auto coup in Peru and the election of Betty Boothroyd as the first female speaker of the House of Commons. So we, well, I say we, I just completely ended up missing the 1992 election. If there'd been a Simpsons episode between them, that is what I would have done, certainly. I mean, really, I I blame the schedulers of Fox for that one. I, I don't think you need to worry. Yeah, exactly. What were they thinking of? Okay, the 1992 election in a nutshell. It was between John Major's Tories and Labour, led by Neil Kinnock. The polling looked good for Labour as Election Day approached, but then Kinnock decided to go for a walk on the beach. He was taken by surprise as a wave came in, and he stumbled and fell over. As he got up, he punched the air as if he was going, damn, that's the election gone then. Also, the sun headline, if Labour wins, would the last person in Britain please turn out the lights? Headline didn't help. So, with Major winning the election, it looked like Britain would be in the ERM for some time, as Major was determined to make it work. Then, on the 16th of July 1992, 
there was a meeting of the Bundesbank Council. Inflation was rising due to the cost of German unification. This was not supposed to happen. Germany therefore decided to increase their interest rates and the UK was expected to do the same. At the time, increasing UK interest rates would have been the opposite of what everyone in the UK wanted, as inflation was already low and the economy was suffering. In the financial markets, traders started to sell pounds and buy Deutschmarks, following speculation that the pound was about to be devalued, i.e. it would be pegged to the Deutschmark at a lower rate. On August 26th, the Chancellor Norman Lamont declared that there would be no devaluations and that the pound would remain in the ERM, because after all, that was their policy. The options for Norman Lamont were slim. Major wouldn't let him touch the ERM. He supported it in public, but his privately expressed views were very different. He thought he had one option left, persuade the Germans to lower their interest rates. On September 4th, 1992, a meeting of Europe's finance ministers was held in Bath. Lovely place, Bath. Lovely place to have a meeting of European leaders. Absolutely. Great pubs. Very hilly, though. Mm. Yeah, beautiful Spartans, Bath. Lamont was buoyed by a letter from Helmut Kohl, which suggested that they were open to decreasing their rates. Britain wasn't alone, as other ERM members, especially Italy, were also clambering for an interest rate decrease. Lamont was pretty forthright in his discussions. He flat out told the Germans led by the president of the Bundesbank, Helmut Schleisinger, that they needed to cut their interest rates. He told them this four times, and they flat out refused each time. It must have been reminiscent of Sideshow Bob trying to be convinced to leave town. Come on, lower your interest rates. No. I'll be your friend. No. Oh, you're mean. So Schleisinger got angry, and he had to be restrained by the German finance minister. The next day, Schleisinger told Lamont that the UK needed to either increase interest rates or be prepared for a devaluation. In Italy, things looked very bleak. On September 11th, 1992, the day before Black Wednesday, traders began to sell copious quantities of Italian lira, and its value plummeted. To fight this, the Italian government spent billions of dollars in an effort to prop the lira up. Under the rules of the ERM, Germany initially did the same, but they abruptly stopped, saying that they were spending too much. In order to save the lira and the other currencies within the ERM, Schleisinger came up with a deal. Germany would cut its interest rates if the other currencies were devalued, including the pound. John Major, who was in Balmoral at the time visiting the Queen, rejected the offer out of hand. The next morning, the Italian lira was devalued by 7%. In return, the Germans cut their interest rates by 0.25%, a quarter of 1%. Traders who held on to lira lost a huge amount of money, but those who were selling it short could cash in. Now, I'm going to have a go at explaining short selling. Oh, this should be good. Because this is something that's very much de rigueur at the moment with what's going on with the GameStop stuff. So the way I understand it is with selling long, you know, the opposite of selling short, you buy something in the hope that it's going to increase in value. So you buy it for, say, $100, it increases in value to $120, you then sell it, and you've made $20. Great. But with short selling, you're hoping that it's going that its value is going to go down. So what you do is you go to a broker, and the broker will lend you one of whatever you're trying to buy, and you agree 
its value then. And then later, you actually buy it for whatever it's worth. So if it starts off being worth 100 and the price drops to 80, you then have something that was worth 100, but you've bought it for 80. So you're up by 20. I'll be honest, I do not understand the incentive for the person you're buying it off. But that is how you make money by selling short. And the risks of it, the amount you can lose is essentially infinite. Because if you're selling long and you buy something for $100 and it drops to zero, then you've lost $100. But if you're selling short and you short something when it's $100, if it increases to, say, $500, then you've lost $400. So there is no upper limit to how much shares can be worth. So you could essentially lose an infinite amount of money, which is why it's very risky. Excellent. Okay. I understand that explanation. Ask me again tomorrow. I will have forgotten it, but I think that was pretty comprehensive. Okay. Okay. So, and you can do that with all sorts of things, including currencies, which is what people did on Black Wednesday. So with the lira devalued, traders looked for other targets with the pound being the obvious choice. All they were looking for was a hint from someone suggesting that a devaluation of the pound was coming. Then they would pounce and start selling off pounds. The hint inadvertently came from Schleisinger himself. In Frankfurt, Schleisinger was talking to a journalist called Werner Benkoff. He believed that their conversation was off the record. In it, he said that he believed that the devaluation of the lira was not enough, and that he wanted a more comprehensive alignment that included other currencies. Benkoff went ahead and published the conversation, and speculators prepared for a devaluation of the pound. The British government tried to get the Bundesbank to deny that Schleisinger had made his remarks, but it was on tape, so we couldn't. Black Wednesday therefore began at 6am on September the 16th, 1992. The Bank of England tried to prop up the value of the pound by spending billions of public money by buying pounds. Very simple idea. You just buy pounds. The more you buy, the more you increase the value, in theory. But still, the value of the pound continued to fall. As the Bank of England was burning through literally billions in a matter of hours, it became clear to Norman Lamont that intervention alone wasn't going to stop the sell-off of the pound. At 11am, the government agreed to raise the interest rate from 10% to 12%, which is a massive jump. However, it had the opposite of the intended effect. Traders saw it as a sign of weakness and continued to sell pounds in the hundreds of millions. What was a bit odd about the evolving situation was that the government had little idea of what was going on. They knew that the value of the pound was falling, but they hoped the rate rise would be enough to stop it. Ken Clark was updated by a taxi driver, and the cabinet spent a good while trying to find a radio so that they could keep up with what was happening. At a second meeting, John Major's cabinet met to decide what to do next. For Lamont, the writing was on the wall. Britain had to leave the ERM. It was extreme, but it was the only option. Major and the other cabinet members, however, had other ideas. John Major decided to make one last play. Increase interest rates to 15%. So they've gone from 10 to 15% in one day. Now that's what you call unprecedented. Major wanted to make it clear that the latest rate rise was a group decision and not his alone. Ken Clark, Major's Home Secretary, said that they were there to have our hands dipped in the blood of the decision. Funnily enough, the rate rise didn't work. By the afternoon, the Bank of England had spent £15 billion 
and it was running out of reserves. Major asked Cole for help, and he responded with, well, I'll get back to you, and he never did. Late afternoon, everyone realised that the game was up. Major had to think the unthinkable, suspend the pound from the ERM. That decision was taken, but at first the city was not told. When the markets finally closed at 7pm, the pound was on the floor, and some traders had made ridiculous amounts of money. The Bank of England made between three and four billion pounds in losses. At 7.30pm, Norman Lamont appeared outside the Treasury to give a short speech to the cameras. There, he announced two things. The pound would be suspended from the ERM, and that the second interest rate rise from 12 to 15% was cancelled. He took no questions and went straight back inside. The day afterwards, the government was absolutely savaged in the media. John Major's flagship fiscal policy was in tatters, as was his credibility. But in a day when Britain lost billions, who were the big winners? Well, one man made over a billion pounds, approximately £16 for every man, woman and child in the UK. And that man was the man who is the target of every anti-Semitic conspiracy on the planet, George Soros. So funny, funny story for the listeners there. Last time we recorded this, Tom did that as a quiz. Hmm. Uh, and I, I, I didn't know who it was. Um, and the, all, all week I've been going, right, got to remember to look that up just before we, we record. Yeah, still, still, still no clue. No clue. <laughs> okay. So in the lead up to Black Wednesday, Soros and his investment company brought up a short position of £10 billion. Pounds. Oh, oh, just the ten billion. Just, yeah, just, just ten, that. ten okay. billion. Ten billion. So short position of ten billion. And the value of what they'd shorted fell to nine billion, giving them a profit of one billion. One billion pounds in one day. Nobody needs a billion of anything. No, no. So and that's how George Soros earned the nickname the man who broke the Bank of England. He basically took on a national institution at its own game and won. So thanks for that. Ironically, after the pound dropped out of the ERM, the British economy did pretty well. Inflation stayed low, not going above 4% for the rest of the 90s. Unemployment steadily fell from its peak of 10% at the start of 1993 to around 7% by the 1997 general election. However, the public hadn't forgotten Black Wednesday and the Tories lost it in the landslide in an election that saw the arrival as Prime Minister of one Anthony Charles Linton Blair. I believe you've uh, mispronounced the war criminal Tory B. Liars there. Mm, absolutely. So, just as a little afterthought, easily my favourite spoof of Black Wednesday was a day-to-day sketch where they ran a news article saying that the pound had been stolen. In an effort to save the economy, the government reverted to an emergency currency based on the Queen's eggs. And they used footage from trading floors on Black Wednesday for that. And it ends with possibly my favourite line from the day today. We'll be asking Malcolm Rifkin for his view and asking him why he likes pulling the legs off live dogs and shooting foreign policemen. So there we are. We've had sperm and now we've got eggs. Yep. And we mentioned Norman Lamont and I didn't mention fisting. Thank God for that. (laughs) We also mentioned pegging and I didn't mention Edwina Curry. You know, this is what this Tory government has really lacked. It's it's what's keeping it away from classic status. is a is a proper kinky sex scandal of some sort. Well, apart from Boris Johnson bonking everything in sight, yeah, you're right. We don't have the Tory sleaze that we used to have in the early nineties. 
was that M- it was that MP who ended up accidentally killing himself while while uh, <laughs> trying to remember what I was trying to auto erotic asphyxiation I think is the phrase he's looking for there. That's right. That's right. So yeah, you, you, you had a Tory MP killing himself by doing that, and a lot of it uh, came out a lot, lot later, including John Major's affair with Edwina Curry. That took everyone by surprise, because the idea of John Major having an affair with anyone doing anything, well, the idea of John Major doing anything more interesting than talking about peas was really quite something. Which in itself shows uh, how effective Spitting Image used to be as a piece of satire. That that characterization of him as the entirely grey pea-eating man um, <laughs> is is just what the British public remember of him. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, that was John Major. Oh, and, and just to note, I did look for a mention of Black Wednesday in The Simpsons, but there wasn't one. Obviously, it being a bit more of a, a British-centric uh, event, there's a few references to the uh, stock market crash, but uh, but nothing uh, nothing around Black Wednesday. I will note, however, that Moe's Tavern is always mysteriously closed on Wednesday nights. That's the night when Moe reads to homeless people in a local soup kitchen. Oh, yeah. So that's a nice Wednesday. Yes, and on that lovely note. Don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. And as it's the end of Series 3, do we say series or season? We're British. Series. So as it's the end of Series 3, you know what they say, finish on a song. Bye, everyone. Who taught you some history? Linked to the Simpsons Season 3. We did. We did. Who thought Contra 3 was great? Asked a pop star on a date. We did. We did. Say goodbye to the USSR Who made Bong Bong Marcos a star We did, we did Who lambasted right said Fred While Robert Maxwell dropped down dead We did